and welcome to Unapologetically Successful Podcast. I am Susanna Helia, your host. Today we have with us Jane Fleming, a former Australian Olympic track and field athlete who has competed in a number of international world-class events and also set a standard for what sport stands for and what athletics is all about. Thank you, Jane. I'll let you to introduce yourself. It is such an honour having you here. Thank you, Zanna. So I grew up in country Victoria. I'm one of five children. We lived on a tertiary agricultural college until I was eight years old and then moved to the big smoke, moved to Melbourne. I went from a primary school of 42 pupils to a primary school of 600 pupils. And I had a really significant six-month period of my life where I've thought back and what is it that triggered my love of athletics? And there were three significant things that happened between the age of seven and a half and eight years old for me. And the first one of those was my mother took myself and my older brother and sister and drove us 26 miles to the Shepparton and District Primary School Athletics Carnival. There we were in our little white T-shirts and our white terry toweling shorts and a pair of Dunlop volleys, I'm sure. And I came home with a chest of blue ribbons. Yeah. And I had won, I was seven years old, I'd won things like the egg and spoon race and the sack race and the, the potato race. And anyway, I ran the won the 40-yard sprint. And I thought everybody ran like that. I just didn't know any different because that's what you did in the country. On the way home, there was a big, long entrance road to the college campus that we lived on. And my mum stopped the car. And I vividly have a recollection of her showing off all of my blue ribbons to some other adults. And I often wonder whether that was something within that family of five that made me feel special, special that gave me something else. So that was the first thing. And then the next thing is when we then moved to Melbourne and I went to this school of 600 pupils, there were sports houses and I had absolutely no idea what they were. I was in grade three and they were named Elliot, Clark, Landy and Dubell. And so they were named after four very famous Australian male Olympians. And I learned who they were. And I became friends with a girl at school, my first friend at this new school. We used to do playground races, but she belonged to Little Athletics. And right. I went home and I said to mum and dad, could I do Little Athletics? And they didn't really know what it was. And they said no because it was Saturday mornings and we used to go to religious instruction classes on Saturday mornings. Those classes got changed to Thursday afternoons, which I always joke this was divine intervention, so I was then allowed to do little athletics. So off I went to Knox was the centre that I belonged to and that was my first sort of introduction to weekend sport or even after-school sport because in the country we didn't really do that. So that was the next thing that happened and then the third thing that happened within that period of time is it was not long before the Olympic Games and Channel 7 had a program that they used to air on Monday evenings at about 9.30 called Olympic Minutes. I was allowed to stay up as an eight-year-old girl and sit on my father's lap and I would watch this television show. And so I learned about a whole series of Olympic legends, including Elliot Clark, Landy and Dubell, and people like... Dawn Fraser and Pavo Nurmi, who's a very famous Finnish athlete, and Emil Zadapek, and a whole series of other Olympians. And I think those three things in such a short space of time really hooked me. And whilst I played in a very successful netball team and at quite a high level and basketball, 
I recall in grade six, so I would have been 11 years old, the daughter of our netball coach and one of my close friends from primary school said to me, which do you like better, athletics or netball? And I remember telling her netball, but it's the first time I really remember lying to someone. I think it was a peer group thing at that point, but I still deep down knew that it was athletics that I loved more. And to this day, that's where I talk around having this this love of whatever you do, and then you choose to do all those things. And if you really love it, it helps get you through some of the harder times in a career that you experience and the likes. And I often use an analogy around people. I use three people. Gina Reinhart doesn't go to work still for the money. And Greg Norman still plays golf every day, even if he's not doing it for the money. And James Morrison still blows the trumpet every day, and he's not doing it for the money either. So it doesn't matter around all of that. It is around engendering that love. And you don't know what it is that does it, but that is the responsibility of coaches, of sports clubs, of PE teachers, of classroom teachers and of parents to whatever it is, whether it's music or sport or the arts. I've come in from running this morning and running on my own. And sometimes I run and I'm like, oh, my God, I was born to do this and the wind's in your hair and it's very fulfilling spiritually, physically, and come back and it's just set you up. I cry when I skiing. So I used to race slalom and downhill skiing. And I actually have tears in my eyes, not because it's cold, but I truly cry from joy when I yes. go fast. And there is a danger with very elite senior sport. And certainly I think I went through phases of this where the joy is taken out of it because there are so many external pressures or you put pressure on yourself and the likes. And I wish that I had have had the insight, of course, don't we all, that I have now back in my 20s around that enjoyment, that love, around making sure that is continually present. Because certainly I think being an Olympian or being an elite sports person is very intense. And I think it's worse than being a workaholic because it is everything you eat and everything you drink and every minute that you sleep. and is all-encompassing and a very intense life, which is why I say I would not like to compete now. I've had that intensity, but it also brings with it, it has the potential to take away some of the enjoyment. I wanted to ask here, do you think everyone can find somewhere within them the love for something? I don't know whether everyone does, and that's why I see it as a gift as well. And, and also it it doesn't necessarily mean it's something that you're good at. So just because you have talent at something doesn't mean that you're going to love it. And we've seen a million and one talented people in all sorts of spheres that don't live up to their potential or don't, don't enjoy what they're good at. And we see it in sport all the time. But I think, again, that's around, and certainly, again, I say we're the lucky country when you're in Australia. I think there, there are a lot of opportunities to try and find that thing. And I often think that in a country like Australia, if it's sport, you're likely to find it. But perhaps if it's the music and the arts, you may not. Whereas if you are in Austria, you're likely to find it if it's music, but you may not find it in sport. Or often it's a culturally driven opportunity levels. And certainly in sport in Australia, I think, I think we have a lot of opportunity to find out if your thing is sport. And as a parent, I feel that's been our responsibility is to try and help guide our boys to different opportunities so that they have the chance to find their thing. Because if you find your thing in life, I truly think it's such an unbelievable gift. 
to live with that passion and hopefully you end up being able to earn an income doing something you would do for free. And I certainly had been able to have been able to do that over the years. Amazing. I actually say that you don't need to be the best musician because there is a lot of really good musicians who play music at train stations. Yes. Whereas there is people who have the passion and the belief and they feel they have a contribution and they end up being stars or producing music for Yes. So indeed, that's one of the things if ever I get to talk to parents' groups, which I don't very often anymore, but that I would say if your child comes home from school and you leave them to their own devices, you do not get involved, what do they choose to do? Okay, so is it go and play basketball? Is it play a musical instrument? Is it to draw? But let's think around how you can make that your career. So maybe you don't have the ability to be a professional basketballer, but that doesn't mean you can't be a basketball coach. You can't run a basketball league. You can't take basketball tours overseas. You can't produce basketball videos. You can't own the basketball equipment company. You can't build holiday programs. There's a million and one jobs in all of those spheres. And it's funny, one of our children loves photography and surfing. And so I said to him one day, imagine if you could end up the World Surfing League's official photographer. And then someone has to do that job. Exactly. So I think that it, like having a thing that you're into and identifying them is, I think, by leaving someone to their own devices, what do they choose to do? So if I had a choice, I would have gone to athletics training over sitting around watching TV. I would have chosen gone to athletics training. And in fact, I did often rather than sleeping with my girlfriends on a Sunday morning. So I think when you leave people to their own devices, but again, it's that opportunity to try and find what that thing is. There are certainly parts of my sporting career that I did not enjoy. Yeah. But I knew that if I wanted the outcome, then I had to go through that process. There's one event in particular out of my seven that I did that I hated, but the 800 meters, because I'm not. And endurance based at all. I'm a very sort I was very much a sprint power person. And but it was the one that I always made sure I didn't miss because I also realized that if you do the hard things first, everything else becomes so much easier. And it was a necessity. So coming this sort of leads us to the point of you actually competed in one of the toughest athletics sports, if you like. How did that all happen? So again, I think the background in little athletics, you do different events every weekend. And I always, when we used to be able to go to the next level up a zone or a regional or a state championships, I always battled to decide which ones I should do. I could sprint and I could hurdle and I could jump. And then both high jump and long jump. And then I then go from the little athletic structure to senior athletics where you chose your events. And I used to do a little bit of javelin as well. So I played netball so I could throw. My older brother was four years older than me. I was always allowed to play cricket with him and his friends because I could and basketball. And then there was a notice board on our club, notice board, a notice around a thing called a pentathlon, which was five track and field events in one day. So I went in that, I think I was 14 years old with another girl, another friend from the athletics club, and I won. And I think that was where it started to take me. And then as I got older, I could have specialized in one of those events that I was stronger in, but I loved the variety. I am an eternal optimist. 
and I could have six events that weren't going very well and one would be going really well and that would be what I was celebrating. I am the sort of person that has a lot of energy and enthusiasm and so I think it just almost picked me rather than me picking it and I learned physically very quickly. So I learned how to throw a shot put properly and I learned javelin. And if someone said to me, do this with your right hand and that with your left foot and this with your right leg, I could probably do it very quickly. And so that obviously helped when I'm training for seven different events. And they went over two days and it was even the strategy around it, even figuring out how much training should I be putting into the hurdles as opposed to the shot put. If I put three hours into the hurdles, how many points will I get? Whereas if I put those three hours into the shot put, how many points will I get? So there was a lot of thinking around it too. And I loved it. I loved doing the heptathlon. Yeah. It is one of the toughest sports and even actually getting your head around the scoring system. It's one of the toughest scoring. Yeah. Although the scoring system is based on the top 10 performances ever. And then the scores come down from that. And a heptathlete is far closer to the top 10 hurdlers there's ever been than they are to the shot putter. So they're not built like a shot putter, they're built more like a hurdler and the same thing. So that's how the points work. But again, there had to be that kind of cost-benefit analysis around the hours and the efforts and how many points would you end up getting. So there was no point me working, spending 10 hours a week on shot put and improving one metre and getting 60 points. If I spent those 10 hours on javelin, and I improved five metres, then I might get 150 points. So that kind of equation or thinking went into it. So having gone through the structuring and actually being quite strategic in training and even actually choosing and deciding to go for the sport, how would you encourage young people or your children even? How do you encourage your children how to strategize or because children have a different hearing and acceptance of our advice compared to coaches. I really think that many of those things that come from sport, and we know this, they're very applicable to life and even at a young age. So whether it's around share passing the ball instead of trying to hog it in basketball, whether it's around time management, you have to be able to fit in training and your homework and your other things, whether it's around making sure that you turn up on time so it's your responsibility to others within your environment as well. And there's a million and one lessons that can be taken. I think, you know, much of that and much of that can be taken from, from coaching, from the coaches that you have even at a junior club level, from kids when they first get involved. And, but much of it also is around the culture that you build within your home. So we have two family mottos in our house. One of them is never give up and the other one is try as hard as you can. And you don't need to, if you have both of those things, whether it's in academics or in sport or whatever it happens to be, then I think that stands you in good stead. And if you really look and go, have you tried as hard as you can? And I recall reading Tony Blair's biography and when he first started working for, I think, a very senior, a very senior judge in yeah. law, he had to write a brief for them. And he took the brief in and presented the brief to the person that he was he had been asked to do it for. And they said to him, is this the best that you can do? And he looked at the guy and he picked it back up off the desk and went back out and started working on it again. And so I think that's around us try as hard as you can because you can't do anything more than that. And there's been so many times in my life where I go back to that and my parents were brilliant with this. They didn't care if we got an A or a C. But if you got a C and you should have got an A, 
then we would have been hauled over the coals. But if you got a C and that's all you were capable of, you were as celebrated as if you got an A. So it was always around our effort where we got rewarded as opposed to our results, because that was the thing that you could control. And again, that worked beautifully for me in sport because I definitely was 100% on effort. In fact, I have a tattoo on my ankle that says 100%. And sometimes that was good enough to win and sometimes that wasn't. But that was out of my control. And one of the things that it allowed me to do was to compete in an era of drug takers and not be disheartened by it because I was judging myself on my effort and if I finished sixth, but the five people in front of me I knew were taking drugs, then that I can't do anything about that. All I could be very conscious of and very focused on is what I could do and how I could try as hard as I could. So we tried to instill that kind of motto into our children. And along with that, trying as hard as you can comes the growth mindset of learning all the time and taking constructive feedback. And we talk about that in sport as coaching, but in the rest of life, it doesn't particularly come in that manner and people don't tend to take it personally. Whereas when you've grown up in an environment of sport, you would never take that constructive feedback or that coaching personally because you know it's all about your performance. So we look at that and try and engender that within our boys as well so that mistakes or errors are there for learning. They are a positive part of your life. The stupid thing is if you don't learn from them and you keep repeating the same mistake, but they are there for learning and for getting a positive experience out of, just as when you have a success, you are to learn from that too. So hopefully you can replicate the behaviors that led to that success. So two things. One is the peer pressure. You knowing that you have might might not have had a medal but the people who got the medal were cheating and you having that inner knowing and ability to say this is who I am and I am not going to go on that path just for the medal a lot of children especially with all of the social media these days feel like they need to have the better holiday the better something yet you having that moral grounding saying I don't do that and with children and coming back to encouraging them as long as you've done your best that's good enough because we don't all need to win we just and it's not about winning actually no and in fact it's about your definition of winning because yeah winning doesn't coming first winning doesn't mean getting the a plus winning doesn't mean getting 90 percent because maybe you should have got 95 percent and you were capable of 95%. And this is to that point around making sure that you've done the best that you can do. Yeah. And it's, it's very different. And for me, as long as I did everything that I could and I could put my foot on the track and I can't control, I could only control what was happening between my two white lines, then that was all, that was great. And you know what? I might've run as fast as I've ever run and still be beat, but I can't worry about what's going on in those other lanes because that is not going to affect my performance. The only thing that affects my performance is me. And so I think that is a is absolutely what got me through some of those questionable times. And it again, it gives me that sense of peace and achievement because I didn't take 
drugs. I never was offered drugs, but obviously I lived through that era. And it just never really crossed my mind. That would be something that I would do. And again, I think it was because I wasn't judging myself against those people. I'm judging myself against me. That is- and maybe that was how I got myself through that era. I don't know. Maybe it was forced upon me and that's what where my mentality came. But it was, my father used to say, all we can ever ask is that you try your best. And it is. What else can you do? Yeah. So it makes it very simple when it's like that, I think. And so that's, again, one of the things with our children that we go, you know what, as long as you try as hard as you can, then that's okay. And I think it's a better way. It's a more, certainly a more peaceful place to be. And this is back to my point where I say when you move from an, a sporting career, elite sporting career into others, if you've done all of that, then you're quite peaceful around, about it. And that is the same kind of philosophy that you can take throughout the rest of your life. So I have been in my corporate life on committees for internships, students. And so I was on the panel and we used to look for people who have achieved something. You had to have marks to even make it to be interviewed. But it was those things like what is different that you can put your hand on and say, I'm passionate about. And it doesn't matter if it's throwing darts. Yes. No, because I think it shows because it demonstrates a whole series of other behaviors. So if you've achieved in any form, usually it requires some discipline and inevitably everything that you do, there are times you don't want to do it, but you still have to get out of bed and do it and you have to take that action and that decision. And I was talking to our boys the other day around the difference between the wanting brain and the deciding brain. And I said, so you might get up in the morning and you want to lie on the sofa and just veg out, but the deciding brain needs to overrule that and say, I'm decided I'm going to go and go for a run, or I've decided I'm going to go and practice my bagpipes. Whilst the wanting brain, it might be something very different. I love that. To, yeah. Yeah. All it takes is one decision for you to do that. Everything is just a decision. It yes. opens our heads. And also I think that runs with this no procrastination. And so my coach, the teenage coach that I said was very wise, used to also say to us, the hardest thing about training is getting changed and getting there. And I would absolutely say that to everybody who needs to exercise regularly. We all know we need to do it, whether we want to do it or is different to whether we decide to do it. But what I would say is get yourself out the front door, either in your runners, in your swimmers or to where you're going to go from. And inevitably everyone does it because you've made the decision. And I think that decision thing is really important. And to and you to understand that the deciding part of your brain just overrules the wanting part. We'd all love to lie around on the sofa and watch movies all day, but that's not going to get you there. You need to decide something different. 100% because I always say that losing weight is not going on a diet. You just need to make a decision. That's, I say it's all in your head. Like when, when people go and... I'm very lucky I never had that problem. But when people say I'm on this diet and that diet, I go, just make a decision how you want to look. Yes. And it's all fall in place. Because once you make that decision, though, you also have to understand that it then takes actions. So we, again, the sports psychologist I used to work with used to use an expression, you have to go through the process before you'll get the outcome. So the outcome might be the decision that you make is I want to look like this and I want to be that way. But but you have to then put those processes or that action into place. 
Yeah. yeah. What are the steps that you are going to take? So does that require you getting up every morning at 6.30 or 6 o'clock if you've got kids or whatever and going for a walk every morning? And does it require you to do that for the next year? And in fact, let's let's look at it. Why don't you do it six days a week? Because you need to have a day off, a bit of flexibility. And then actually let's look at it for the rest of your life. Not the next year, not anything. We're going to change your habits. So it was yeah. interesting. I coached our little boys basketball team when they were in grade three. We formed a basketball team. Oh, and cool. Our first year, we won. It was amazing. We won the grand final. We went through undefeated. And then we weren't very good at shooting, so we would put up a million and one shots. So yes. I said to the boys, there was nine boys in our team, nine or ten boys in our team, and I said, we're going to do this competition within the boys, and it's called 100 for 100. So you have to do how to buy this one. 100 shots a day, for, and whoever does the most days in a row will get $100, which for a nine-year-old boy is a lot of money. So I said, but here's the thing. You can have one day off a week. You can miss one day a week. Okay. You can split those up if you need to. But now here's the thing. You have to start thinking about how they're going to fit into your life. Okay. So some days, you know, you're going to have a busy day. You might have swimming lessons or rugby training or mum goes to work early or whatever it happens to be. So you have to think ahead and you've got to plan how you're going to fit those hundred shots in. Okay. And this is an honor system. These are your mates. You have to tell us if you've missed more than one day one day a week. And it was amazing to watch them and they had to time manage. They had to have a little goal every day and they started to understand around doing some of those other things. And to the extent that when they got home from school camp one day, they got the two days of school camp off, but they got home from school camp. One of the boys went, goes to bed. He wakes up at 11 o'clock and runs downstairs in his pajamas and said to his mum, I haven't done my shots. So there he is outside doing his 100 shots so that he could continue on. They went for more than three months, which for a nine-year-old is amazing. And so I look at those sorts of things. And so that was the outcome for that was that you would become a better basketball shooter. Yeah. But the processes were that you had to time manage, that you had to make the decision to do it when you were going to do it, that you had to have some honor around that, that you had to make that decision every day to get the basketball out and to go down and to shoot the basketballs. And so it's like that, like even little things like that. And as kids, they start, you, there are things that you can put into place and it is around being process driven around taking action. I love, love that children did that on their own. Yes. And actually that's about empowerment though, isn't it? So I believe, fully believe in that. It's a bit like with one of our children who did something was caught out doing something he shouldn't be doing and we asked them to buy into their punishment. What do you think would be the appropriate punishment for or the appropriate penalty for that particular behaviour? And when they suggested... It was much harsher than... What oh, much harsher, absolutely. Like it could be three weeks without a device and I was going, I was going to give you three days, but yeah. <laughs> and then I'd say to them, oh, I was going to save two weeks, so how about we go 10 days? And then I come out of it looking great. <laughs> But they are much more, everybody in life is much more willing to comply if it's their own initiative and their own thoughts and their own programs. I'm all about empowering, uh, yeah. their self-empowerment. And especially for young children, even if it's a small thing, once yeah. they learn how to do it, over their age, it becomes much more important. And I also think around choice as well. 
Yeah. So I think choice is a very good word to use. I go, okay, you don't want to help put the rubbish out. That's fine. Okay, here is your choice. You can either help put the rubbish out or you can sit in the naughty corner for 30 minutes. Your choice. And then they are. Um, this is a personal thing, but I'm very weak and I go too hard to ask to empty the dishwasher. I'll just do it myself. Yeah. No, that's an obligation as well, though. And that for me, that's around contributing. So you have to contribute. So there's no way you can't contribute. Because it creates. And, so, and you don't get paid for that. And you don't get you don't get paid for contributing to a household or to a workplace or to a it's a bit like when you go on a group holiday. There's the givers and the takers, aren't they? There's always the one person, people that cook and that clean up and that bring all the food and they do and then there's a number of others that just sit on their butt the whole time. And you're like, really? Yeah. And you figure out, but you're far better off. It's such a, you make it the place a better, a, the world a better place if you're a contributor, a giver, not a taker. You would have met a lot of different athletes and people. What do you see or who inspired you to keep on going? Was there someone very specific that you felt like, I want to be like that? So it's interesting because I've been asked that question quite a lot. And I remember posing, I was emceeing something. And I don't know if you remember Michael Johnson, the yep. American 200-400 meter champion. And I remember emceeing something with Michael. And I said to him, who were your childhood heroes? Were they Carl Lewis? Were they, was it, you know, somebody else? Carl Lewis, I'm trying to think of who else I could say at the time around that era. And he said, oh, no. He said, my childhood heroes was my father. He said, I was the youngest person, youngest of five children, and I thought my father could just do anything, could solve any problem, could do anything. And one of the things that I have absolutely, without categorically, the people who I look up to and who are my heroes are people that I know who I boast about. And so for me, it would be both my parents, a number of my friends. Some, sometimes it's even some of the friends of my boys like amazing kids. They're people who I boast about. Their achievements do not define them. It's more their character that I think is amazing. And very many times I will meet someone famous and you may have admired them even as a child. And then when you meet them, it's disappointing because they're actually not that person or they're not very good. But the two people that I would say who have outshone any kind of notoriety or performance or athletic ability or medal one or anything that I've met in my life who are absolutely amazing. One of them is was John Landy, the 1500 meter runner. He ended up the governor of Victoria and the most humble, amazing man. And so I ran for the Landy house when I was in primary school. So I knew all about him and I, as a little girl, and when I met him, he exceeded my expectations. And I would say the same about a woman, a South Australian woman named Marjorie Jackson. In fact, she was from Lithgow, known as the Lithgow Flash, won Australia's first ever female Olympic gold medal in the sprints. She ended up the governor of South Australia, bizarrely enough, but she's exactly the same. To meet her and have a conversation with her, she's just a super down-to-the-earth, sassy, smart woman before her time amazing person. And it's not at all about what they've done on the sports field. It's about who they are as people. And I think that is a commonality. And I refer to these people as my boastables and they're people who you boast about in life. I love the word boastables. Yeah, I made that up. I use it commercially as well. I, I've never heard that before. I have no. just said that boastables are good. I love that. Yeah. 
They are. And everybody has them when you hear, when you get into a conversation with someone, they're like, oh, she's such a fantastic person or wow, he's amazing. Or, and that's what I say, even with some of our boys, friends, I go, he's such a good boy. I said, he's so smart and he's caring. And like there are, everybody has them in their life. And I think to look to people that you don't know is a slight mistake. And yes, we need heroes and the likes, but it's when you have those people that are close to you that have had a, such a massive impact. Yeah. And I would say that like my sisters, I'd say, you know, what I talk about them, I go, even if they weren't my sisters, I'd want to be their friend. Also, by the way, it's when you've achieved and you've started with that, if you do absolutely everything to get to where you are, it doesn't matter what you've achieved, but you have put yourself forward and you've worked and you've done your best. Yes. Then you are also more comfortable with yourself, which yes, means you, you are so much more generous with people and understanding and kinder. Yeah. And compassionate. Yeah. I think, so I think that the other thing for me that was around this trying as hard as you can thing with my parents is that it, it has given us a very strong core. And the other thing that it has done is that it has given us a, from the outside, people might say it's confidence or courage to try new things. But for us, we just never had a fear of trying anything new because it was about how hard you tried. It wasn't about the result. And I can do some bizarre things in my life. So I can, I sew and I taught myself to sew because I just gave it a try. And there's lots of things that I've done in my life because I've just given it a go because I just tried and trying was what was the most important thing, not what the result was. So as long as there was that effort there, and so you don't have any fear. There's no fear of failure because failure does not have a negative connotation to it. That's just about learning. And the only failure is, and in fact, a sports psychologist said to me, this, the only thing you can ever fail in is effort. Hey, you are such an inspiration. You have such a beautiful energy. And it truly is every morning someone should listen to you and the day becomes <laughs> better. Thank you. That's funny. Yeah. But I do think that though, isn't it? If we, well, I was going to try to sew. So as long as I put some effort in and try, then that's great. Like, what? Well, so sew the garment might have looked rubbish, but who cares? I've tried. And so it does give you that. It's a really lovely, lovely gift that my parents have given us because we're never scared to try anything. I love, actually, my daughter, as she was, I dropped my daughter to school and as she was getting out of the car, she goes, Mom, promise me we'll have a really good day today. And I said, I'll do my best, honey, but I don't know. And she goes, what are you doing? And I said, I'm interviewing you. And she goes, it will be amazing, mum. <laughs> Beyond amazing. But I love that. What an optimist. I love optimism and positivity. Uh, yeah. But I think that's, again, like where I say to you, go, as long as I'm still trying to be the mother that I can be, then again, it gives you that peace to be able to move forward and maybe gives you the patience. You can't be anything other than that. And I'm not perfect, by the way. Yeah, none of us are. There is no such thing as perfect. No, but that's why we don't want to be perfect because otherwise we lose that learning from our mistakes. So do no. you remember the woman that founded Spanx? Yeah. Um, First, Sarah Blakely. Yeah, Sarah Blakely. First billionaire, female billionaire in the US. And yeah, she's like, her father, she came, I think, from eight children and they'd get to dinner at night and her father used to say, tell me who made a mistake today. And they would celebrate the mistakes because that meant you were learning. Not only so, I obviously I'm obsessed with understanding what makes people tick, succeed, 
be happy and if you like the purpose of life, the big question. But she is such an inspiration. But I also yes. say about the, about the failures. If you don't do anything, and this is how I, I made so many mistakes. It's, of course, we all have. But I say, at least I tried. Like, yeah. I have a whole basket full of experiences. Yes. They were really costly, but I have given it a really good shot. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But that's taking the steps to do what it is that you want to do, isn't it? Taking the action. Yeah. Yeah. But also I think for me, one of the other things that I find more often than not, people that are really successful are very optimistic. Okay. So do you want my theory of success? Yeah. So there is that net positive. Scientists doesn't go into a lab to discover cure for cancer or whatever else because scientists doesn't believe. So there is that belief scientist goes to the lab to find a cure for something. They have a knowing. And then the second one is a grit. It's not like just work hard because if you only work hard, but don't believe. So it has to be that positive aspect yeah. to it. Yeah. But Come- that's, where if you, that's where if you're judging yourself on effort, you're always getting that positive reinforcement. And I think that comes from exercising regularly. What it does. And so one of the things that I love about rec- exercising regularly is that obviously there is the neurochemical change that you get with the serotonins and endorphins and the likes, and particularly if you're outside. But secondly, most goals in life take a long time to achieve. Exercise this morning, out the door, half an hour later, feeling really good about myself because I've done it. And so you get this constant reinforcement because you're achieving a goal and you're achieving it on a daily basis. And most goals take a really long time to achieve. But this, and when you're training, it's very black and white in sport. It's very black and white. Today's session, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing this. It'll be done in two hours. I've finished. And I've got all those neurochemical changes, but I've also got that thing where I'm feeling really good about myself. And so when you do that constantly, I think that contributes to what you're talking around that net positive. And you continually have this good perception of yourself. Because it's a sense of achievement already, which yes. drives. So there is a part of the brain, I don't heard about it, it's called reticular activating system. And it's the same thing as when in a crowded room, someone says your name, you suddenly hear it, or a mother can hear a child cry. And the brain actually narrows down what yep. it wants to hear and what our focus is. And it's completely subconscious. But coming back to, so if you have the first achievement, the brain already is responding to the first achievement and it then looks for other achievements in a day. And then you are continually doing that on a daily basis. Yes. And so then it becomes a pattern and embedded. You are such an inspiration. Thank you so much. Can I just say, and I feel like life is good. Everything is going to work out. Keep yeah. on being and indeed. And Sarah Blakely and Regina Reinhardt are not going to retire. I'm close to quite a lot of successful people, as you would be, and none of them are retired. No, because it's because uh, I think their brains would go go to mush. Yeah, and, and it's it's so much fun. Yeah, because actually working along towards a goal or living a fulfilling life is makes you happy make sure you like it and actually i'll tell you the other thing that i think is the secret to happiness and yeah. definitely i think sports people get this and we, as you get older is the attitude of gratitude 
So I'm going, oh my God, the fact that I have been able to spend my 20s traveling around the world and doing something that I loved and with people that love doing the same thing and whether it's that or whether it's, oh, I love that new pair of shoes I got today. And that doesn't have to be a $1,000 pair of shoes, a $200 pair of shoes, a $10 pair of shoes. But if you are grateful for whatever that is, it gives you a sense of happiness. And I do, I think being, having that sense of gratitude is so important. Yeah. Can I ask, standing on a world stage on a platform, getting an, a medal, can you take us through that experience? Most of us haven't had that. No, I think what comes a lot of the time it's relief oh. because you, I don't think very often you do a performance that you don't know you're ready for or that you haven't already decided that you can do and you work towards that and you know you're ready. And so thank God I've delivered what I knew I could do. And, and inevitably, by the time you get to that level, and that level, maybe Olympics might be the the end of it, but inevitably your goal has moved on from that already. So you might go, yeah, I'm going to win the Olympic gold medal, but now I were actually now I want to be breaking the world record. In fact, no, I know that performance that I did to win that Olympic gold medal was not perfect. So there is still room for improvement. So it's still always that learning thing. So whilst there is the external celebration of what's going on. I think most people that I know, there is a sense of relief around that and there and that accomplishment. Yeah, I've done that. I can, I'm done and dusted. I can tick that box that I've worked so hard for, but inevitably they move on very quickly to what the next box is. So when I made my first state team, okay, if I can say I've gone, I might've been aiming for that for five or six years, even from a little girl. But once I've made that state team, I knew I was going to make that state team. Then it was about where I was going to place when I got to that national competition. And then once I got to that national competition and now got to the level where I knew I was going to win that national championship, I was already thinking about what team that was getting me into to go and play on the international stage. So I think that often your goals are way ahead of what your performance is. So you had an inner knowing that you will make it. Yes, of course. You were already there. Yeah, yeah. And I think it would be unrealistic for anybody to say that they didn't know. That is powerful. Yeah. I do. I think it is un- perhaps other than a Stephen Bradbury kind of situation where everyone fell over. But I think it is very unrealistic to think that anybody that goes into anything does not have an, a knowing that they at least have a chance if they're at their best or they do what they know they're capable of to be as successful as they had planned. Unless so, they're original. So it's nearly, some people are, and it gets them very far, actually, because yeah. it's beyond belief. Yes. But that is actually really powerful because coming back to, you need, Einstein used to say, imagination is more powerful than knowledge. Yes. And it's you, and you worked hard towards it, but the external, the medals and all of the accolades that come with it were actually about three steps behind where you were. And also I think that the, it was just expected. So I recall one of my confidence, when I first went from being a very good junior, under 20 athlete, I knew when I was out on the warm-up track warming up, 
I used to have this attitude that I just knew everyone, all my competitors were watching me warm up. And I, and, and I knew that. And so I would carry myself in a particular way and of course, and then I would go ahead and I would win, but I had done all the work as well. And then when I first moved into the senior ranks, I remember saying to my sports psychologist, I need to try and get that same attitude I had when I was a junior so that I'm the one that I think that, and that's the round how you carry yourself. I knew that I was going to win. I was going to be up there. As long as I executed what I knew I'd trained for that I'd probably done before, I knew that I was capable of, then that was what was going to happen. And if I moved four or five years further down the track, that is exactly how I was on the track. When I was warming up, I thought everyone was watching me. Whether they were or not was irrelevant, as long as I thought they were. Yep. Because it's all in mind. It's all in you. Absolutely relevant to me. (laughs) You were there to lead. Yes. I was there to do my thing. I just think that, and I think, and at that point I thought my thing was good enough to win. So. I I got so much out of this, by the way. I wish I would be now 30 years younger. (laughs) (laughs) I really, don't we all? (laughs) My son asked me recently, I'll finish because I know you need to go, but yeah. he's, mom, if you would know what you know today and you have to restart your life age six, would you do it? And I said, oh, as much as I don't want to go through my life again, I think if I would know what I know today, I would. Yeah. I actually quite like the path of lead. Yeah. I think you've done No, but the heartaches and, the, and all the other stuff as well. But again, I think that's just about being comfortable where I am. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank Thank you, Zemma.